53rd episode of our news podcast. This is going from July 30th to August 5th. This podcast is part of Atlas News. You may be listening to this on the Atlas News app, like I was saying on the last episode. These news podcasts will be going on the Atlas app for the first 24 hours exclusively, and then after that, they will be on all normal platforms. So again, happy to be working with Atlas, and thank you for supporting us. Thank you for listening to this episode. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands. That's a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyzeeducate, or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate. And we will head into the news. All right, so before we get started here, you guys have helped us reach over 16,000 downloads to this podcast, and on Spotify alone, we have over 1,200 followers. So again, thank you very much for supporting us and helping us grow a lot, especially within this past year. All the support you guys have given, really, uh, we appreciate it very much. Now, looking at Europe and Eurasia, of course, we're looking at this blockade on the Lajkin Corridor. State-organized Azerbaijani protesters are still blockading the de facto Armenian Republic of Artsakh. The Lashkin Corridor, which connects Artsakh and Armenia, runs through Azerbaijani-controlled territory that's supposed to be kept open by Russian peacekeepers in the area, but they have completely failed to enforce ceasefire provisions that ended the Second Karabakh War in 2020. The blockade of the corridor has led to food and medicine shortages in Artsakh, which are getting worse by the day. The elderly and pregnant women are the most affected by this blockade. The blockade has gone on for almost eight months at this point, and it shows no sign of ending. The International Red Cross's Armenia office is being pressured to leave Nagorno-Karabakh. It is the only international organization providing aid to the region. Also, bread lines are hundreds of people long, and they are being reported in the region as food shortages uh, worsen again day by day. Azerbaijan arrested an ethnic Armenian that was trying to be medically evacuated from Artsakh. That man is Vagif Katatrian, who is 68 years old, and he was being evacuated by the Red Cross with 14 other patients from Artsakh. He was arrested because Azerbaijani authorities accused him of committing war crimes during the First Karabakh War in 1991 in the village of Mashali. They claim that he and other men raided the village and uh, killed 25 people and injured another 14. And they also expelled 358 uh, ethnic Azeris from their home. He has been charged with genocide and deportation or forced movement of the population. Azerbaijan claims that an international search warrant was issued against him in 2013, but Armenia, Artsakh, and Eurasianet News were not able to find that supposed international warrant. Kachatrian did fight in the war against Azerbaijan uh, in the early 90s, like most ethnic Armenians in the region. Armenian newspaper Propark claims, excuse me, that he was a driver for Samuel uh, Babayan, who commanded the Artsakh Defense Army during the war. However, uh, 
Kachatrian's sister denies this claim. Former residents of Mashali do claim that they recognized his face and they saw him on the news and say that he did take part in the massacre. Aziri political analyst uh, Taral Hamid believes that Kachatrian may have taken part in the massacre as well. Before the event took place, according to this political analyst, members of Azerbaijan's OMON Special Police Unit went to uh, this man's village, which is about six kilometers from Mashali, and confiscated weapons and ammunition from the ethnic Armenian villagers. At some point after, men from this village attacked Mashali and killed an unknown number of people, many of whom uh, this political analyst claims were members of that OMON unit. The evidence that has been publicly presented against Mr. Kashatrian has not been strong. Azerbaijani authorities published a photo that they claim is him armed with a rifle during the massacre in 1991, but in fact, the photo is actually that of an Azeri man armed with a rifle taken out the side of a hospital in 1994 in an area that Azerbaijan controlled throughout the entire war. So, uh, as where things stand right now, uh, Mr. Kachatrian is still in Azerbaijani custody and his trial is still likely to go forward with the public evidence being pretty uh, scarce as it is. And also on August 1st, Azerbaijani troops detained another ethnic Armenian man, that is Rashid uh, Beglarian, and he is a 60-year-old ethnic Armenian who reportedly got lost near his village of Mechin in Artsakh, and that's really all we know at this point. Not a whole lot of details coming up from that. All right, taking a look at Russia, we got a couple of updates here. First of all, a friend of the show, Uncle Yevgeny Prigozhin, announced that he is running in the 2024 Russian presidential election as an independent. Of course, he is not likely to win, uh, nor is anybody who's running against Putin. But yeah, just an interesting update. Figured I'd throw that out there. Also, uh, Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny was sentenced to an additional 19 years in prison uh, for being convicted on charges of extremism, which, uh, for note, is the same thing that Igor Gherkin was charged with. I think we spoke about that in the past episode. Navalny is already serving a nine-year sentence in a Russian penal colony for fraud and contempt of court. Before being imprisoned in 2021, he was a leading figure opposing President Vladimir Putin. He was also poisoned, which he blames the Russian government for. So that's where we're at right now. Looking at the war, uh, late last month, two foreign volunteers with Chosen Company of the 59th Motorized Brigade uh, were killed while fighting Russian forces. Those two men are Lance Lawrence, who is a Marine veteran, and Andrew Weber, who is an Army veteran. Their deaths were confirmed by Ryan O'Leary, who is the senior enlisted advisor for Chosen Company, who himself is a veteran of the U.S. Army and a veteran of the fight against ISIS. Lawrence and Weber were killed, according to O'Leary, while providing a base of fire so that the rest of their unit could maneuver. Chosen Company is filled with Western volunteers, but it is separate from the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. It's a part of the Ukrainian ground forces, the standardized Ukrainian military. Lawrence was a 0331 machine gunner from 3rd Battalion, 6th Marine Regiment from 2013 to 2016 with a deployment to the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. He was apparently shot in the arm two weeks before his uh, death on the front line, but opted to remain with the company, according to uh, O'Leary. 
And then Weber served in the U.S. Army from 2006 to 2014 as first a chemical officer and later an infantry officer with one deployment to Iraq and two to Afghanistan. His awards from the Army include a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart. He leaves behind a wife and his two daughters. Moving on, late last week, another American veteran was killed while fighting Russian forces as well. This is Jeff Jones, a U.S. Army veteran who was killed near Bakhmut with the 204th Territorial Defense Brigade. The areas surrounding Bakhmut are where Ukraine has had the most success during their summer counteroffensive. However, gains around Bakhmut uh, still aren't major, and they won't make much of a difference looking at the big picture. It's just really not a strategically important area at this point. I haven't been able to find any more information about Jeff Jones, so if I come across something, I'll give this an update, but at this point, I haven't been able to find much. At least 16 Americans have been killed in Ukraine since the invasion again. Of course, the vast majority of those were killed in combat. Many of those are U.S. military veterans. On July 30th, a Ukrainian suicide drone struck Moscow's OKO-02 business complex high-rise building. The high-rise houses, residential areas, business offices, hotels, fitness centers, government offices, and other areas. At least one person was injured by this drone strike. Three Ukrainian drones apparently attacked Moscow at the time. The Ministry of Defense claims that one of them was shot down and the other two were down by electronic interference. Obviously, that's not entirely true as one of them struck their target and the building was struck the very next day. So we do know that that was a purposeful target. Airspace around the capital city was restricted at the time and local airports did issue a ground stop. The drones used in this attack are a new type of kamikaze drone that Ukraine has just showcased publicly. It reportedly has a GPS guidance system at a range of 1,000 kilometers, so I expect that to be used more in the coming weeks. On the fourth, multiple Ukrainian unmanned surface vehicles, otherwise known as USVs, attacked near the port of Novorossiysk and Krasnodar Krai. This is, of course, in Russia. This is the farthest east that Ukrainian drones have attacked, as far as we know. Those drones targeted and damaged uh, Rapucha-class LST Olenogorsky Gorniak, which is assigned to the Black Sea Fleet. This is the largest ship to be attacked uh, by Ukraine since the sinking of the cruiser Moskva, which was the Black Sea Fleet's flagship. Gorniak was apparently used as a ferry for civilian vehicles after the Kerch Bridge was put out of action again last month. We spoke about that before. And thanks to John for uh, the Defense Bulletin for pointing that out. Quick note, I had John and uh, Chris from Project Leaflet on a war report a couple days ago, so check that out if you haven't already. Now, this is the third Rapucha class to be damaged in the war. The other two were damaged in March 2022 by a Ukrainian missile attack on the occupied port of Berdyansk. Gorniak was listing by the time the sun came up in the morning, but it was towed away. Regardless, it will be out of action for quite some time. All right, moving on. The next day on the 5th, a Ukrainian Mogora V-5 USV hit uh, Russian oil tanker SIG about 20 kilometers south of the Kerch Strait Bridge. Project Leaflet made a good post about that type of drone a couple days ago, so I suggest checking that out if you haven't already. SIG was not carrying cargo at the time and was likely traveling back from Syria. The ship is important to Russia's component in Syria by supplying the force with jet fuel. For that reason, it has been under U.S. sanctions since 2019. The tanker had to be towed away by two tugboats from the port of Novorossiysk, which itself was attacked by Ukrainian SUVs. 
sorry, USVs uh, this week that we just spoke about. No injuries were reported in that attack. Damage was seen on the outside of the ship as well as on the bridge. Some of the ship's common areas and the engine room was actually flooded with oil as well. Moving on to the uh, Middle East region, U.S. military is reportedly preparing to deploy Marines and sailors on board commercial vessels in the region as Iranian naval forces have been seizing commercial vessels in recent weeks. According to the Washington Post unnamed source, the plan has not yet been approved by President Biden, but once it is, it can't be implemented by the end of the month. The source claims that Marines from Camp Lejeune have been flown to Bahrain and received training related to this potential mission. Additionally, U.S. warships are en route to the region to counter Iranian threats already. That includes the USS Bataan, USS Carter Hall, USS Mesa Verde, and the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. Now we will take a quick break. We'll be right back with Africa. All right, we're back taking a look at Africa. Uh, we're going to look at Niger. Many of you have probably been looking at the news and wondering what is going on over there. So the situation in the country is pretty fragile right now. Basically, last week on July 26, the presidential guard detained uh, President Mohamed Bazoum in the presidential palace and a military coup was carried out. Brigadier General uh, Abdu Ramin uh, Tichiani named himself chairman of the National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, essentially making him Niger's military dictator. This is at least the third military coup carried out in Africa in recent years by personnel trained in the United States. The country was initially placed under a curfew and its borders were closed. The curfew has since been lifted and some of those borders have been reopened some. Niger's airspace has been closed to international flights until at least August 11th. Diplomatic ties with uh, France, the U.S., Togo, and Nigeria have been suspended by the military leadership. However, France's ambassador is currently refusing to leave, saying that she only recognizes the orders of the legitimate president of Niger. The ruling military leaders have, as I alluded to, been burning bridges with Western allies and allies in the uh, economic community of West African states, otherwise known as ECOWAS. The pro-junta M62 movement has called for foreign nationals to actually be held hostage until all foreign troops leave Niger. While this is not the junta itself calling for such, M62 does hold a lot of influence with junta leaders right now. The U.S. has basically ended military cooperation with Niger in the fight against uh, Islamist insurgency. Niger has been a pretty important partner to the U.S. military in the region. About 1,100 U.S. troops remain in the country and have been restricted to their base at the time, but there are no current plans to uh, basically have them take part in an evacuation of the U.S. embassy that has been ordered. Additionally, France still has up to 1,500 troops in the country, and Italy and Germany also have some forces in the country as well. We now know that just hours before the coup, uh, France's general directorate for external security advised the French government to deploy special forces to the presidential palace to defend uh, President Bazoum. That was uh, declined by the French government because it feared that the move would be seen as colonialism. 
and additionally, the World Bank has halted payments to Niger uh, because of the whole situation that's going on there and the uncertainty. There's a fear that Russia may seek to take advantage of the coup by way of the Wagner Group. Of course, we've spoken about that many times before, which began putting forces in Mali and Burkina Faso after their recent military coups. French diplomats claim that Niger has made contact with the Wagner Group during uh, a junta official's recent trip to Mali, which is also ruled by a military dictatorship, as I just said. Recently, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who we talked about a little bit before, said that his forces are available to, quote, restore order in the country. On Saturday, LSI Africa, which is a news outlet, claimed that a small group of Wagner Group instructors landed in Niger's capital city of Niamey from Mali. French intel analyst uh, Cassis Belli, who is on Twitter and is a great source for Africa, claims that this is likely an advisory team of about a dozen or so men. At the same time, the Russian government has asked for a restoration of constitutional order. So, uh, you know, some different messaging, kind of interesting to take a look at that. On the subject of ECOWAS that we spoke about a little bit before, since the coup happened, military conflict in West Africa has become a lot more likely. ECOWAS has given each air until Sunday, which by the time you guys are listening to this, this uh, deadline will have passed already to restore Buzum to uh, power and threaten military force if the junta refused to comply with this deadline. Negotiations between Niger and Igowas have so far failed. They're really not going anywhere. Nigeria, who is a leading member of the organization, has cut electricity supply to Niger, causing blackouts around the country, including in the capital city. Also, President Bola Tinubu of Nigeria asked the country's Senate on August 4th to support a military intervention into Niger to restore President Bozum to power. He also asked the Senate to support a blockade of the sea and air routes to Niger, which would affect the country's ability to import and export goods. ECOWAS military chiefs have apparently made a plan for a possible invasion and set a potential date. However, final approval Foreign military intervention does lie with members of uh, member nation heads of state. Excuse me. Uh, Chad has confirmed that it will not take part in an intervention in Niger, but Chad is not a member of ECOWAS, so I'm not really sure why they came out and said that. Um, don't really know where things stand right now because on Saturday, the 5th, the Nigerian Senate refused to approve the deployment of troops to Niger as part of an ECOWAS mission. They say that the military is ill-equipped to fight a war and must handle Islamist insurgents first, which they do have a pretty big issue with. So that might leave the possibility of an ECOWAS mission up in the air. I have heard some things that there's uh, certain provisions in Nigeria's constitution that gives their president the authority to basically discard the Senate, deploy the military anyway. I'm not really sure what's going on with that, but I'll keep you guys up to date as, as things in that regard become more clear. Interestingly enough, uh, Tichani, who again is currently the military ruler of Niger, actually served as a battalion commander during a 2003 ECOWAS mission in the Ivory Coast. So just a little fun fact for you guys. Both Mali and Burkina Faso, which again, also under military puntas, pledged to support Niger if it is invaded by an ECOWAS force. Niger's military was in contact with the two countries before the coup was even carried out. Both those countries are also ECOWAS members themselves, but their membership was suspended after their recent military coups. 
Bozum asked for the international community and the U.S. to restore constitutional order. France says that it and the U.S. are committed to the restoration of democracy. Specifically, France announced on Saturday that it would support an ECOWAS military intervention. The U.S. has not said whether it would or would not support such an intervention, but did say that it will suspend some aid programs to Niger until Bosom is put back into power. Niger relies on foreign aid uh, very heavily for its budget. Foreign aid makes up 40% of Niger's operating budget. So another fun fact for you guys. Embassy evacuations have been... uh, in process or already completed. France has completed its evacuation of the embassy and some uh, French and European citizens. In total, they evacuated uh, 1,079 people. 577 of those are French nationals. And again, they got people from other EU countries as well. Italy has also carried out an evacuation and the British embassy has reduced uh, its diplomatic staff in each area, but I don't believe they've completely closed the embassy at this point. Um, Again, it's, it's looking like war in the region may be on the horizon, but uh, the status of the ECOWAS mission is kind of up in the air, so it's not really clear what's going on right now. All that we know is uh, West Africa is closer to a regional war than they were last week, and that's pretty much where things stand. So again, if things start to develop further from there, we'll keep you guys updated, of course. Now, looking at Sudan, again, fighting between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces still continues. Uh, the capital, Khartoum, they've been getting hit pretty hard. A lot of places are running out of water and electricity. Uh, not a lot of healthcare facilities in the country are functioning, and they suffer from you know fuel to run their generators and, of course, medical supplies and things of that sort. The war is so far... The war has so far forced just under 4 million people from their homes. Of those, 926,000 have fled to other countries. Witnesses are continuing to report to the UN regarding war crimes carried out by RSF, uh, particularly against ethnic minorities. In the week prior, uh, the SAF claimed that it added 23 RSF officers to its ranks. Apparently, these guys defected. And those guys were uh, ranked anywhere from lieutenant all the way to colonel. The RSF made similar claims in the same time frame, saying that 15 officers and 527 soldiers from the uh, armed forces switched sides, particularly in East Darfur. Heavy fighting continues in Omdurman with locals reporting an attack by the RSF on the Central Reserve Police Base. On the 31st, they also reported uh, an armed forces shelling in the neighborhood of Old Omdurman on the same day. Fighting continues in Khartoum as well. The SAF says that its uh, special task forces attacked an RSF base in West Khartoum and killed 15 fighters on the 31st. You should take every claim coming from both sides with a grain of salt, right, because they really like to embellish. Also accused the RSF of shelling the El Ramila neighborhood, killing four children. And on August 2nd, the SAF attacked a bridge connecting Khartoum and Khartoum North, which they claim killed 12 fighters and destroyed four of their vehicles. And then lastly, on the 31st, a faction of the Sudan Liberation Movement announced that it took part in battles with the SAF against the RSF in Darfur recently. That faction is led by Mustafa Tombore, whose brother was actually assassinated in mid-July by RSF troops after the rebel group joined forces with the military.
All right, moving on to the Americas. Uh, Bulletin from the Borderlands, we just had that drop within the past week. Uh, we were looking at the election drama in Guatemala. We were also looking at some kidnappings in Haiti and also discussions of uh, deploying an international peacekeeping force to Haiti as well. And then we were also looking at some arms agreements between Bolivia and Iran. So you guys should take a look at that. Hope you enjoy that issue, of course. Looking at the U.S. Uh, presidential race update, looking at the polls, again, these are all averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 41%. Disapproval is at 54 Both of those are unchanged from last week. Trump's favorability is at 39 His unfavorability is at 56 Both of those are down by one point. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 64%. RFK Jr. is at 15 Biden is down by one point. RFK remains the same. And then looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 53%. DeSantis is at 14 And Vivek Ramaswamy is at 7 Trump is up one. DeSantis is down one. Ramaswamy is unchanged from last week. And then moving on, uh, Hunter Biden and his foreign business dealings are back in the news. His former business partner, Devon Archer, gave testimony to a closed session with the House Oversight Committee. He also went on Tucker Carlson's Twitter show a couple days ago. Archer was also on the board of Burisma Holdings and began a couple of months before Hunter was brought on to the board. Archer says that he was brought onto the board by uh, Alexander Kwasniewski, who is the former president of Poland, who was also on the board at the same time. Devon says that his role on the board was to secure funding for global expansion, especially in the U.S. Now, looking at the claims he made to Congress. So he claims that, obviously, President Joe Biden had a dinner with him and several other people. That includes Vadim Pozarski, who was the corporate secretary of Burisma Holdings at the time, and Apparently, Joe Biden joined in conversation with them. That dinner was in April 2015 at a D.C. restaurant Cafe Milano. Archer says that the dinner, including himself, the two Bidens, of course, Joe and his son Hunter, Pozarski and uh, Alexander Karlutsos, who is a high-level priest in the Greek Orthodox Diocese of America. It also included an unnamed person from the World Food Program. And lastly, uh, Kasim Masimov, who was then the Prime Minister of Kazakhstan. One day after that dinner, April 2015, Pozarski apparently wrote an email to Hunter Biden where he thanked him for allowing him to meet the Vice President at the time, Joe Biden, and spend, quote, some time together, end quote. A month before this dinner, emails uh, show that Hunter and Archer were working on a guest list for the dinner. That list included multiple guests, including Bozarski. In one email, Archer tells Hunter to, quote, obviously save a seat for your guy, end quote. During his interview with the Oversight Committee, Archer said that Hunter referred to his father as, quote, my guy. But Archer did not confirm that in this specific reference uh, that term was used about Joe Biden. Last month, Fox News reported on a 2015 email that was written months after the dinner from Pozarski to Hunter, Devon Archer, and another business partner, uh, Eric Schwerin. In that email, Pozarski says, quote, my only concern is for us to be on the same page regarding our final goals, end quote. He, he continued, with this in mind, I would like us to formulate a list of deliverables 
including but not limited to a concrete course of actions, including meetings and communications, resulting in high-ranking U.S. officials in Ukraine, such as the ambassador, and in U.S. publicly or in private communications and comment, expressing their positive opinion and support of Nikolay or Burisma to the highest level of decision makers here in Ukraine, such as the president of Ukraine, the president's chief of staff, the prosecutor general, etc. Bozarski added, the quote, scope of work should also include organization of a visit of a number of widely recognized and influential current and or former U.S. policymakers to Ukraine in November, aiming to conduct meetings with and bring positive signal slash message and support on Nikolay's issue to the Ukrainian top officials above with the ultimate purpose to close down for any case slash pursuits against Nikolay in Ukraine, end quote. That's pretty much all he said to Congress. Those are the, the main highlights. Look at what he, at he said on uh, Tucker Carlson. He basically says that Hunter brought the, quote, network and Biden brand, end quote, to Burisma, which is why he was put on the board. He also claims that uh, Hunter would uh, call Joe Biden in over on speakerphone while Hunter was in business meetings. And apparently this happened roughly 20 times, according to Archer. He also says that Joe knew Hunter was in business meetings during these calls. He says he doesn't know if the calls were orchestrated or not, but they were, quote, powerful because the vice president was on the other end of the line. He says that he has no knowledge of Hunter speaking with his father about business content conversations regarding Burisma. And he says that just having the proximity to power that Hunter had was enough to motivate his business associates. And those are really the highlights of what Devon Archer said. Uh, if you guys want to read the full transcript from this closed session with the House Oversight Committee, you can. You can find it online. It is, I want to say, like 140 pages, but uh, if you don't want to take my word for it, you guys are more than welcome to read it yourselves. Again, very easy to find online. Now, moving on to the first, uh, former President Donald Trump was again indicted on federal charges by special counsel Jack Smith in relation to the January 6th investigation and alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The four felony charges are conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy against rights. These charges can carry a combined maximum sentence of 55 years in federal prison. Of course, this is the third criminal case Trump is currently facing, the first being the uh, District of Manhattan over alleged hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels. And then the other one, of course, is also from Jack Smith in relation to the storage of classified documents at Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. This new case has been assigned to Washington, D.C. District Judge Tanya Chukin, who is an Obama appointee. Republicans have been skeptical of Chutkin for a couple reasons. Uh, one, she is the only judge in the country to sentence January 6th defendants to longer prison sentences than what prosecutors have requested. And second, before being appointed to her position, she was a partner at the law firm of uh, Boyce, Schiller, and Flexner. 
this firm has been highlighted because Hunter Biden also worked for this law firm, uh, which has in the past lobbied for Ukrainian energy company, Burisma. Lastly, Trump will be facing an uphill battle in D.C., of course, which in 2020 went 90% for Biden and 5% for Trump. The next hearing for that case is set on August 28th in the morning. Uh, If you were to ask me, I'm not entirely sure which indictment is more dangerous for Trump. Obviously, the one in New York, uh, I don't I don't think that one is uh, really going to go anywhere. It's a pretty weak case and you really have to stretch the statutes for it. Um, and then the maximum penalties for being convicted aren't uh, nearly as grave as these two federal indictments you have here. Now, first off, I think the classified documents case in Florida, I think that is a pretty strong case against Trump. Uh, Trump's real only saving grace in that case is the fact that it will be held in southern Florida and maybe the the jury will be um, inclined to side with him, I guess you could say. Now, looking at this newest indictment in D.C., I don't think this is a particularly strong indictment, but uh, again, the jury's going to be in D.C., which are, are not fans of Trump, so I don't, actually don't really know which one's uh, more dangerous from them. They're both pretty serious just looking at uh, the penalties. So obviously we'll keep you guys up to date on whatever happens with that. And then uh, last story we got for you guys on the third, two U.S. sailors were arrested by NCIS and the FBI in charge with espionage on behalf of the People's Republic of China in exchange for payment. The two sailors are uh, Jing Chao, uh, Wei, also known as Patrick Wei. He is a petty officer second class. And then the other sailor is petty officer uh, Wen Chang Zhao, who goes by Thomas. And both of those sailors are stationed in California. Wei is a 22-year-old uh, naturalized U.S. citizen who was born in China. And he reportedly passed sensitive information, including vessel manuals to China while stationed aboard the USS Essex. He apparently also sent his intelligence handlers in China photos of firearms, uh, aircraft, and personal information of U.S. Marines preparing to take part in an upcoming joint military exercise. Wei passed information to his handlers as recently as two days before he was arrested. Looking at Zhao, he is a 26-year-old and he is stationed at Naval Base Ventura County. He allegedly photographed diagrams and blueprints uh, at a base in Okinawa and then passed those plans, uh, excuse me, additionally passed plans for a large-scale military exercise uh, to a Chinese intelligence officer. Wei has been working with Chinese intelligence since February of last year, and Zhao has been working with them since August of 2021. Both men have pleaded not guilty, and they will be in custody until at least August 8th when they have their detention hearings. It isn't clear if the two work together. That's pretty much all we know at this time. But with that being said, I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Again, it means a lot to me. You can find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You could also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. It's all one word. We're also on threads at the same handle. And then you could find us on Telegram at Analyze and Educate. Please consider supporting us on Patreon again or at Ko-Fi. That helps us out as well. Or you could be sure to leave us a five-star rating on whatever app you use to listen to this podcast. That helps us out as well. That is all I have for you guys right now. We will see you soon.